Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Dark, Season 3, Episodes 1 and 2. Albert Einstein, as most Americans know, was a German theoretical physicist. An agnostic Jewish man, he emigrated to the United States to escape Nazism. He is most famous among laypeople for the formula E equals mc squared, as a winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics and as having developed the theory of relativity. Season 1 of Dark opens with a quote from a personal letter of his, in which he hoped to comfort a deceased friend's family after the loss of that friend. That quote, I will remind you, was, The distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher whose work was unfortunately appropriated by Nazism, thanks to his sister Elizabeth's editing of his manuscripts. An atheist, he was critical of religion and Christianity, developed the concept of the Übermensch, and has become largely associated with nihilism in the minds of modern laypeople. A quote from his Beyond Good and Evil opens Season 2 of Dark, reading, If you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Arthur Schopenhauer was another German philosopher, albeit one far less talked about in America. A large influence on Nietzsche, his work can be understood as a Western interpretation and response to Buddhism. He believed in the concept of the will to life, an inherent self-serving and self-preserving drive within people. The will to life, according to him, is largely obsessed with producing children. The will to life causes humans to fall in love with whomever will help them produce so-called balanced children. It was an opposite-the-track sort of thing to him. Tall people will love short people, masculine people will love feminine people, and so on. And he believed that it fundamentally precluded most of us from achieving happiness. It's all really very silly, but I fear it may foreshadow something for these final eight episodes of Dark. Because episode one opens with a Schopenhauer quote, A man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills. In other words, you have control over your actions, but you don't truly have control over your desires, and your desires, of course, determine your course of action. The Einstein quote was meant to introduce the audience to themes of time travel. The Nietzsche quote was meant to foreshadow the Adam Jonas reveal. What is the Schopenhauer quote telling us about what's going to be happening in season three? I dread to think. But on to our episode. We open with an unfamiliar female voice replacing Adam's narration. We will later learn, unless I am mistaken, that this is old lady Marta B, who seems at this point to be Vinden B's counterpart to Vinden A's Adam. She's basically using a lot of words to say what the Schopenhauer quote said already, which really makes it clear how much the show intends to drive this point home. After the voiceover, we get a new character. Three, actually. Or three in one, I guess? I don't know who this man is, but he's the most clear instance of the three faces of Adam trope yet. He's made very distinguishable by what appears to be the scar of a repaired cleft palate, so it's obvious that he's not someone we've seen before. And he, in all three of his life stages, sets fire to the abandoned Sigmundus hideout. When is this happening? I have no idea. It could be after Adam has already died, or it could be in a parallel world. Either way, we're going to see this dude again, and I am at no point within these two episodes going to begin to understand who he is or what he is doing. He feels like an outsider to me, honestly. He feels like this multiverse's equivalent of a TVA or Temps Commission agent. He feels like someone sent in to clean up the mess, so to speak. And if that's the case, then perhaps he's the fly in the ointment that could unravel this knot. I certainly don't want that to be the case. Having some entirely new character be the one who cuts the thread feels cheap, but we'll see what the show ends up doing here. In any case, we're back to 2020 for a replay of the Teen Jonas and Marta B scene from the season 2 season finale. They escape just before their deaths with Marta B taking Jonas to Vinden B and leaving him down in the caves with little to no explanation. She explains only that it's the day she and he met, the day Vinden A pulled Vinden B into the knot, and then leaves with a very interesting special effect that reads as much more fantasy than sci-fi. Cut to Marta B's house in Vinden B. The Marta B that wakes in her bed is younger, though we don't know by how much, than the Marta B who just poofed away, so I suppose I'd best call them each something different. 
So the Marta B introduced at the end of last season is going to be time-traveling Marta from now on. And the Marta B who hasn't yet begun to time-travel is just going to be Marta B. Sorry if that confuses anyone, but this is just that kind of a show. When she comes downstairs, we see just how much the actor playing Mikkel has grown since the beginning of the show. The narrative tries to justify this by having Mikkel be genuinely just older than Mikkel A. And while I think that's both amusing and perfectly reasonable from a we're-making-a-TV-show perspective, I do want to point out that it doesn't make any sense. Follow me for a moment. A child is conceived with a specific genome because a specific egg and a specific sperm meet up. If a different sperm had met that same egg, a different child would have been produced. If a different egg had met that same sperm, a different child would have been produced. People with ovaries are born with all the eggs that they will ever have, and they release one or two on a roughly 28-day schedule. But people with testes produce new sperm continually throughout their lives, with roughly a million sperm cells being produced each day. The sperm production and maturation cycle takes approximately 64 days. In other words, for Mikkel specifically, for any of us specifically, to exist, not only did a specific egg have to meet up with a specific sperm, there is also an extremely limited window of time for that to happen. Mikkel can't simply be born earlier, and his siblings can't simply be born with different hair. That's a very TV cliche way of doing other universes, and it's a trope that I don't really enjoy in a story. I don't want to make a huge deal out of it, but I do want to encourage the writers and the audience to really think about whether you want to use the real logic or the TV logic shown here in your own works. Doing things this way is definitely the done thing, but I'd really enjoy seeing the real logic version every once in a while. Just once, let me see someone visit another universe to discover that their best friends or their siblings or something have been replaced by a bunch of familiar strangers who share the same parents as the people we're expecting, but come from different gametes. I just think it'd be fun subverting the trope with the truth for once. Upstairs from Katarina and her younger children, we see a Tommy Wiseau-esque Magnus having sex with Francisca, who sneaks out his window without saying a word. That, we will soon find out, is because she cannot. Instead of her sister, Francisca is the one who is deaf and mute in this universe. Most importantly for Katarina's family, though, even more important than their changed hair colors and their different house, is that Ulrich is nowhere to be seen. That's because Ulrich B. is currently Hannah B.'s husband. Apparently, in the absence of Michael, Hannah is far more successful in her pursuit of her childhood crush. Except even though he's married to her and she's pregnant with his child, he still won't tell her that he loves her. To which I say, haha. Hannah, though. Hannah B. looks like she is about to pop, which I assume is a big hint that we're going to be seeing this Hannah Ulrich baby sometime before the end of this season. And I've got two big theories on this kid right now. A, that it's going to be twins, Agnes and Noah. But if that kid comes out with a cleft palate, I also won't be too terribly surprised. As Marta rides her bike through town, wearing a familiar yellow rain slicker, we get our confirmation that Eric still went missing in this universe. Except, why? Eric went missing in the original universe because Noah was trying to build a time travel device, presumably on the orders of Adam. But if Adam is Jonas, then there's no Adam in this universe, so who the hell kidnapped Eric, and why? At school, Marta meets up with Magnus, whose hair is so distracting, and I cannot decide if I adore it or if it's the worst thing I have ever seen, and no, there is definitely no middle ground. And she meets up with Bartas, who has this hilarious little cozy hipster aesthetic going on in this universe. And that definitely is an improvement over Vinden A's version of him. But in the Jonas-shaped absence, there is a Killian-shaped stand-in. Who is Killian? Your guess is as good as mine. Except, because I am and shall remain in deep denial over Jonas being Adam, I want Killian to be Adam. The eyes are roughly the right color, there's a mild resemblance, more so than with either of the younger Jonases. And he has all the same potential to be Adam as Bartas A does. He's hung up on Marta, he has good reason to want to trick Jonas, and honestly, I just don't really want Adam to be Jonas. Again, I think that he is, I just don't feel that he is. And yes, I know how delusional I sound, I really cannot help it. 
Anyway, we find out that Killian is Eric's older brother, and then we cut to Helgi. It will happen again, he says, running through his familiar lines from season one. But unlike Helga A, whose ear was destroyed when Ulrich attacked him, Helga B's eye is destroyed. How did that happen, though? If Mikkel never travels through the caves, and he definitely doesn't, then that means Ulrich never travels through the caves to look for him. That means Ulrich never becomes convinced that killing baby Helgi will save Mikkel, which means that Ulrich never attacks baby Helgi. So how did Helgi lose his eye? When Charlotte comes in to check on her father-in-law, we see that she's more feminine than her Vinden A counterpart. She's grown her hair long, and she's taken the time to both curl her hair and wear some very subtle, pretty makeup to work. And I think it's really disappointing that we learn she's not the chief of police here. In the universe where Charlotte is more masculine, she gets to be the chief of police. In a world where she's more feminine, though, Ulrich gets the chief of police job instead of her. It's probably pretty accurate to reality, honestly, a subtle judgment of whomever made the promotional decisions at the station. But it's terribly depressing, nevertheless. Jonas, meanwhile, rolls up on his house, except, of course, that it's not his house. It's not even Hannah's house in this universe. So what is young Jonas to do with himself besides creep around in his not-girlfriend's bedroom without her knowledge or consent? See, I definitely get how young Jonas grows up into adult Jonas. It's just the leap to Adam that's missing for me. At the station, we see Voller among the other officers and discover that in this universe, whatever accident took his eye instead took one of his arms. And back at her house, Hannah is in for a surprise. It's poetic justice, as far as I'm concerned. She gets the exact scene that Katarina got in season one. She finds a suspicious hair on Ulrich's hoodie and sniffs it to check for any familiar feminine scent. I assumed the same thing here that Hannah obviously did. I assumed the blonde hair was Katarina's, because while I don't love Charlotte as a person, I would never wish Ulrich on her. But how fucked up would it have been if Ulrich had been cheating on his new wife with his ex-wife, and oh, the awful things that would tell us about both Katarina and Ulrich's psyches. Like, we do already know that Ulrich is peak philanderer. Honestly, the guy needs therapy. So maybe this wouldn't do anything to make him look any worse than he already does, but Katarina? Getting herself into that situation would point to some of the lowest self-respect I have ever seen. Thankfully, it's not Katarina who has become Ulrich's mistress. Unfortunately, it's Charlotte, and maybe that's what it says badly about Ulrich that we didn't already know. He never once hinted at any attraction to Charlotte in the other universe. But Hannah stops putting out because she's pregnant and Charlotte looks just a hint girlier, and what do you know? Gross. At the school, Bartos is giving the class an award presentation about black holes. Potentially the very same presentation that Francisca gave in the very first episode, though I did not go back to check. And then Jonas walks in. He barely manages to bluff his way into hanging out in the back of the class by kind of accidentally pretending to be a new student. And yeah, this guy is definitely growing into adult Jonas at this point. This is adult Jonas behavior. This whole episode of Jonas Conwald, stalker extraordinaire, is absolutely a bunch of adult Jonas behavior. It would be funny if it wasn't so simultaneously sad and creepy. Also, I need this teacher to do better. I get that most of the Western world isn't as fucked up as America is, but if a disheveled young man with a trauma stare, fresh hanging scars, and blood all over his hands walks into a school and cannot tell you who he is or why he is there, you definitely do not let him hang out in your classroom full of children. I don't know if Germany has ever had any school shootings, but this teacher is definitely acting like no one in a school could possibly be a threat, which really tells you something about America, doesn't it? At the power plant, Charlotte B. asks Alexander B. about the door in the caves and about its potential connection to Eric's disappearance. It works much better than Ulrich's aggressive technique did in season one. Sort of. There's no big blow-up between Alexander and the police, but letting Alexander do his own internal investigation into the evidence isn't exactly going to get results when it comes to the timey-wimey nonsense that really happened to Eric. At the school, we hear that Marta will once again be putting on the Ariadne play, while Hannah walks in to confront Katarina. 
The smile on Katarina's face when she gets what Hannah is hinting at tells the audience everything we need to know. Katarina is enjoying Hannah's misfortune every bit as much as I am, and I'm no huge fan of Katarina, but I honestly love this for her. Fuck Hannah in any and all universes. Or, speaking more literally, don't. After class lets out, Jonas stands up too quickly and accidentally leaves his brain cells behind on the desk. He approaches Marta B and assumes that she's time-traveling Marta, despite having a completely different hairstyle and personality. He tries to get more information out of her, but she obviously has no idea who the hell he is or what the hell he's talking about. And thankfully, we as the audience know he doesn't mean her any harm because he is fucking creepy from her perspective. He's also creepy from the teacher's perspective, or at least he should be. Jonas asks what the date is, no, not what day of the month, but what year. And while the teacher is confused by this, he needs to be way more concerned. Again, this teacher, I don't have any faith in his ability to impart knowledge and critical thinking, that's for sure. Every time we see him, he's been an entire buffoon. A dirty, disheveled, bloodstained boy with no identification and a thousand yard stare just asks you what year it is, and you didn't call 911? Bitch, something happened to this child. Take his ass to a hospital. Overpower him and take him to a hospital if you have to. Something is seriously wrong here. But no. Jonas leaves without much protest, and in the hall, he runs into his mom. She too is apparently unconcerned with this, I repeat, dirty, disheveled, bloodstained, and clearly confused boy. He calls her mom, which of course gets her attention, and though he's clearly about to burst into tears, she just leaves. I would get it if he was a grown man, that is simple risk assessment. A grown man is a bigger physical risk than a teenager. As a woman, other adults will not immediately come to your rescue if you're assaulted by an adult man, but they will if you're assaulted by a student while inside a school. But Jonas is clearly a child, and something has clearly happened to him. At the very least, ask him if he needs you to walk him to the guidance counselor or the nurse or something. Jesus Christ. At the police station, Voller walks in on Ulrich and Charlotte making out, and I cannot thank him enough for interrupting that horrible, awful sight. I never want to see those two together again. What is the opposite of a ship? Like, an anti-ship? Is that a thing? If it wasn't before, it is now. Ulrich and Charlotte are my fucking anti-ship. At the school theater, Marta is rehearsing a part of the Ariadne play that we haven't seen before. I have to wonder, not for the first time, if this is a real play, because Marta's dialogue here is very applicable to her and her counterpart's relationship with Jonas. But after rehearsal, Jonas again tries to talk to Marta, and when she tells him to leave her alone, he grabs her and, and wow, Jonas, that is the gun-wielding lunatic from last season, all right. That Jonas consistently grabs and intimidates Marta to try to control her is really horrifying, and says something truly terrible about the kind of man he is growing up to be. It's the first big hint that he could indeed grow up to be a man as sociopathic and unempathetic as Adam is. At the graveyard, Jonas finds Regina's grave, but not Michael's, and Peter, who is apparently a preacher of some kind in this universe instead of a therapist, finally helps Jonas get a clue. There's no Michael buried here because there is no Michael here. Mikkel never time-traveled, Inez never adopted him, and Jonas was never born. Back in 1987, though I couldn't tell you if this was Vinden A or Vinden B or somewhere else entirely, a trio of arsonists break into Helgi's home and menace the old man for a minute before they corrupt the poor guy. And honestly, he was kind of an asshole, yes, but I don't think he deserved all of that. But buried in there is a snippet of something. The creepy kid who doesn't blink accuses Burned of having kept a master key to the power plant for some reason, which I feel is going to be important. Has Burned been using it for something we don't know about? I assume they kill him because, again, I think they're doing some kind of a cleanup of everyone related to the time travel or something like that, but I don't really understand what's happening here yet, and I am desperate to find out where this dude comes from, what's his motivation, what's his deal, all that jazz. Also, someone please make this little boy blink every once in a while. He is supremely creepy. And he reminds me a bit of the girl who played child Agnes in the previous season, so maybe that's something. 
More interesting, though, are the lines that Adult Mystery Man delivers before killing Burned. It's the same lines that Noah claims he heard from the soldier that I was led to believe was Jonas, except we saw Jonas stay at Noah's place in the previous season, and Jonas did not say those lines. So who did say them to Noah, and how does this guy know about them? Is this the guy, or is something else going on entirely? Maybe it's like a Sigmundus motto or something? I don't really know. I have so many more questions than answers at this point in the show. At Eric's dad's place, Eric's dad meets with Alexander about getting rid of the waste. I had honestly forgotten that Eric's dad was even involved in that. His appearances in this show have been very sparse indeed. I thought way back when that he was going to be a much bigger player in the action, but apparently not. Beneath the bridge by the old railroad tracks, Marta and Jonas play out the mirror of their scene from the first episode. Jonas repeats her words about deja vu back to her, except those weren't Marta B's words, so of course she's frightened of this stranger stalking her to quote a bunch of nonsense. But Magnus and the others show up before Jonas can get to anything resembling a point, and it's somewhere between hilarious and pathetic here that Jonas still seems to think that Mikkel is involved in this. Jonas doesn't need to save Mikkel from going into the caves because Mikkel is old enough in this universe that he doesn't need a babysitter. Mikkel isn't in danger, which made me wonder who among this group of friends might be. We have Marta, Killian, Magnus, Francisca, and Bartas, plus Jonas. None of them go through the tunnel tonight, as far as I know, but someone must have, right? In Vinden A, the first on-screen instance of flickering lights and dead birds corresponded with Mikkel's journey through the tunnels and Mad's reappearance in 2019. We see the Mad's thing happen here, but is there a Mikkel stand-in? Does someone travel through the tunnels instead of him? I assumed so, but when it turned out to be none of the teens, I'm really not sure what to think. More importantly, this makes me wonder something else entirely. The rustling in the bushes in the first episode turned out to be Jonas, but he can't have caused the noise of someone opening the tunnel doors or the flickering of their flashlights. Am I forgetting who used the tunnel in that moment, or do we not yet know? Anyway, we get a repeat here. Someone uses the tunnels because we hear the telltale roaring wind and the lights all start to flicker. The kids all run for it, and Marta trips just as Jonas did. Also just like Jonas, she's scared by an unexplained vision of someone covered in black fluid. For Jonas, this was his father. For Marta B, it's herself, maybe? Or it's Marta A? It's hard to tell. Whoever it is, Marta doesn't stick around to find out. As the lights flicker all over town and bird corpses fall from the sky, Marta and the other teens run to the bunker just in time to witness Mad's body falling from a wormhole. Given the ID he's got on him, Marta knows it's her uncle, or at least I think she does. And back at Katarina's house, Jonas meets yet another mysterious old woman. This one is a different kind of witchy-looking than Claudia was. Claudia was wild, and this woman is sleek. She is, of course, Marta B. all grown up, and I can only assume that this means that the show is setting her up to be the equal and opposite to Vinden A.'s Adam. Place your bets now, folks. How likely is it that old lady Marta B. is running around calling herself Eve? But now we're on to a time when none of our time travelers have gone before. Not on screen, at least. Time-traveling Marta shows up in 1888 to give us the reveal that this is where adult Jonas, Magnus, Francisca, and Bartas ended up after escaping the apocalypse. How? Not sure. Why? Based on the next episode, it seems like it was an accident and that it means they're stuck. Adult Jonas is stunned to see time-traveling Marta here, which doesn't actually make any sense. If there's nothing crazy going on here, if we're not suddenly in Vinden Sea or something like that, then either we've just broken the time loop, or we can expect teen Jonas to get a bad case of amnesia sometime in the near future. Because adult Jonas here clearly has no memory of going to Vinden B, which means that the teen Jonas we've been following all along cannot grow up to be him. Not without, like I said, catching a bad case of TV amnesia. So are there more universes going on here than I know about, or have the writers begun to break their own rules? Because if it's the latter, 
I'm going to need to hear some very good justification very soon if they expect me to go along with that, but I will keep an open mind for now. Because Marta comes bearing a plot. She says she's going to help adult Jonas find the origin, the point in time when the knot started, the point in time when the knot can be snipped. I'll believe it when I see it, but for now, we are on to episode two. Which opens with yet another Marta Jonas sex scene. Don't get me wrong, I'm not like complaining about Louis Hoffman's ass, but what are we at? Six Marta Jonas sex scenes now? It's fully ridiculous at this point. Anyway, Marta wakes from her sexy dream turned nightmare to find older Jonas watching her like a fucking creep, but hey, sneaking into your bedroom to watch you while you sleep is technically a step above threatening you with a gun, so maybe this is progress? After getting dressed in her unflattering Victorian-era peasant girl ensemble, Marta B comes out to disappoint her friend's doppelgangers. They are thrilled to see her alive, but her protests are met with confusion that only gets worse as she goes into the specifics of her universes, Francisca, Magnus, and Bartas, including that they have, spoiler alert, died in their own little apocalypse. Magnus apparently left his brain back wherever Jonas lost his, because his I'm not dead, I'm here line would put him into himbo territory if he could just learn to be a bit nicer to go along with the dumb. But back to Inez's house. Katarina wakes in Mikkel's bed, thoroughly confusing the fuck out of me for a while. I was truly expecting to find out that she had traveled to another world, thanks to that glowing shit from the last season, not that she'd simply used the tunnel the way it's always worked. But apparently nothing special happened in her tunnel journey. She simply went back 33 years to the fall after Ulrich tried to travel home with Mikkel. Since then, Inez and Mikkel have abandoned their house. They're in hiding, it seems, after what happened with Ulrich, and I honestly don't really trust that Inez truly doesn't have any idea what's happening here. If the kid thinks that he is from the future, and some madman thinks that he is his son, maybe investigate. Don't just take the kid and run. Anyway, it's apparently the day of Mads' funeral, except that of course Mads' body won't be found for another nearly 33 years. Yana clearly doesn't want to be holding this funeral at all, and she blows up at her husband, taking great satisfaction in outing him as a philanderer in front of all of the gathered mourners. She throws all the evidence of his affair with Claudia in his face until she fully runs him out of the house, and I am honestly not mad at it. Ulrich's dad is the same kind of asshole as Ulrich himself. Back in 2020, we get our first glimpse of what the world looks like after the onset of the apocalypse. Claudia is caring for Regina in a ramshackle structure of some kind, but Regina is unfortunately not long for this world. Elsewhere, Peter and Elizabeth are also struggling to get by in Vinden's new monsoon season, and they're headed toward the wall of missing peoples that the military, I guess, has set up? They can't find Charlotte or Francisca among the photos of corpses, but we do see a slew of familiar faces. Clausen, Alexander, and Voller. Poor Voller. This bastard did not deserve what he got. And in the 1880s, adult Jonas is busy getting up in time-traveling Marta's face. Is this the thing that turns him into Adam, I wonder? Seeing another Marta and deciding that he doesn't like her? Does this Marta sully his memory of his own Marta? Does seeing this Marta turn his lost Lenore version of her into a saint in his memory? All I know is that I really don't like the way he tries to intimidate her in this moment, though I do think he's onto something when he accuses her of lying. Because while she says that he traveled from his own world to hers, that never happened for this version of Jonas. And like I said a few minutes ago, that breaks the world. Either we're dealing with multiverses, or we're dealing with missing memories. Either way, when Jonas says she's lying, I am definitely inclined to believe him. Whatever Marta is doing, I think she is leaving something out. There is something that she's not telling him. But Jonas really has kind of lost his mind since failing to prevent the apocalypse as an adult. It was obvious at the time, given the gun waving, but I'd hoped that maybe he could have gotten a grip since then. No chance, unfortunately. Jonas's interrogation of and accusations against Marta escalate to physical violence, such that Magnus and Bartas have to intervene. 
And then in walks some old fucking blind dude I've never seen before, and Jonas hangs his head like a scolded puppy. The relationships and everything that's happening here is both confusing and disturbing to me. This definitely seems to be how the gang ended up involved in Sigmundus, and so much has clearly already changed for them, even since the end of the last episode. I feel like I've kind of lost my footing with them, like they've become entirely different people since the last time I saw them, and seriously, who the hell is this guy? I get the distinct impression that he is bad fucking news. At the high school in 1987, Katarina tries to find her younger son, and instead gets bullied by her husband and her teen self. She is reasonably disturbed by Ulrich's mention of a madman, though the irony here is hilarious, as is the little scooch that Hannah does to try to get safely past this scraggly, screaming woman. And she is right to be afraid of Katarina. No sooner does Hannah drop the news about the madman than Katarina assaults her. Now again, I have got to emphasize for you just how much I hate Hannah, but this is a large adult woman physically assaulting a truly tiny little girl, and I just cannot get on board with that no matter what I think of the victim. What happens here says nothing good about Hannah, but it says a lot that is awful about Katarina. Elsewhere, in 87, Tronti comes asking Claudia's secretary about Claudia's behavior in the days leading up to her disappearance. The secretary says that it was her appearance that gave her away. Claudia was looking increasingly disheveled after always being so meticulous in the past. And the secretary blames this on crone Claudia, who she only knows as the woman who claimed to own the dog that looked like Gretchen. She points out how strange that encounter looked from an outside perspective. A woman came to get the dog, then left without the dog, and after that, Claudia seemed to unravel and then ultimately disappeared. Without knowing what happened between the two women, of course, it seems incredibly bizarre. Speaking of Claudia, though, she's putting together the conspiracy wall back in the post-apocalypse, matching photos of people's younger selves with their older and elderly selves. It's juxtaposed very depressingly with the wall of apocalypse casualties, and I've gotta wonder if that means something for our cast, given that I think the only way out of the loop is to snip the knot off. If the show really does wind up snipping out the knot, how many of the people on Claudia's big old wall of crazy will even exist, let alone still be alive? Back in 1987, Katarina storms into the police station to demand why she hasn't heard anything about a madman trying to abduct Michael. It seems that she's been harassing the police for a while about Michael, but of course they won't tell her anything. Not only is she unable to prove her identity as his mom, she doesn't even actually exist yet. They are definitely right not to tell her a word. But the officer she speaks to does tell her something. He clarifies that Michael has not disappeared, and Nez has just taken him somewhere to recover from what happened over the summer so Katarina leaves to investigate this madman lead. Elsewhere in Vinden, Tronti rolls up on Regina and Gretchen at the bus stop. He offers her a ride, and it is deeply uncomfortable. Tronti, of course, recognizes Gretchen. And his probing, desperate questions about Claudia make Regina uncomfortable to the point that she asks to be let out of the car. To his credit, Tronti lets her without protest, and he leaves her with an outstanding offer to help her if she ever needs it. Though I do doubt that he really means it. If she had ever actually needed anything from him, anything that was even slightly difficult for him to give, I am willing to bet that he would have left her hanging, given the way he's treated her so far in her life. Because we finally get confirmation that Claudia was never married. Regina's father is entirely unknown. And unless Claudia has other secret lovers that the audience doesn't yet know about, then Regina's father is definitely Tronti. And not only does he never acknowledge her or stop his son from bullying her, he goes on to kill her post-apocalypse. Tronti sure is a hell of a guy. But we're not there quite yet. Where we are is Hannah's house in our irradiated rainstorm. Peter and Elizabeth break into the ruins of the building to poke around, presumably looking for signs of their missing family members. They don't find anything, but someone finds them. It's young Noah, and I am fully about to call the FBI based off the way he is looking at this baby girl. 
Elizabeth is, what, 12 here? And Noah is clearly at least 18, and thanks to the timey-wimey shenanigans, he knows that he's going to have a child with her someday. It is horrifically gross, and I kind of wish that Peter here had been a bit more aggressive in the face of Noah's Edward Cullen-level behavior. He's stalking her because he's going to protect her because he loves her. Bitch, you do not know this child. Take about 12 million steps back and leave that little girl alone. Anyway, back to the 1880s. Bartos comes to talk to Marta and he apologizes for Jonas's behavior. There is an interesting line here that I think might just be less than stellar writing. Bartos says that, quote, since they came here, Jonas has been different, but Bartos had literally never met older Jonas before they used the time machine to escape the apocalypse. So, like, different from what? You don't know this dude. Marta, though. Marta has got good questions. Why are they here specifically? Who is the blind guy? What the hell is going on? The blind guy, when talking to Jonas, says that he found Jonas, but what does that mean? Did they just fall out of the sky in front of him? Did he build an 1880s version of a Geiger counter and follow the clicking to wherever they got dumped? Or did someone point him in the right direction? Is there like a man behind the man behind the man behind the man behind the man pulling the strings? Worryingly, the blind guy says that he and Jonas are going to create paradise, which I think confirms that technically this Jonas is Adam now. And you know what? Hold the phone for a second here. I made that joke earlier about Crone Claudia renaming herself Eve, but what if that shit is not actually a laughing matter at all? Later in this very episode, she was standing right in front of a portrait of the biblical Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden is referred to as a paradise. Jonas renames himself Adam and is obsessed with getting Marta back. What if Jonas chose that name for a more literal purpose than I realized? What if his plan is genuinely to, quote, create paradise, with himself within that paradise in the role of Adam and some version of Marta opposite him playing the role of Eve? And if that's what he wants, where, or when, does that leave everyone else? Because if something like that is his goal, surely Magnus and Francisca would not go along with it. Whatever the truth is, Blind Dude is definitely a Sigmundus dude. His cane has even got the words carved into it, and you'd think Jonas would run for the hills the minute he heard those words, but okay, I guess. Jonas has lost his mind. Sure. Why not? Back to 1987. Katarina is looking for the madman, but she is stricken momentarily mute by the sight of the woman at reception. It's Katarina's own mother, Helena, who we know and will be shortly reminded is physically abusive to her. When Katarina recovers from the no-doubt complex emotions of unexpectedly coming face-to-face -face with her mother-slash-childhood boogeyman, she tries to explain that the madman is her husband, but this brings Helena to what's honestly the reasonable assumption. Katarina is around 50. Ulrich has been imprisoned for 34 years, putting him into his 80s. For her to be his wife, assuming that no time travel was involved, he would have either had to marry her before being arrested, back when he was 50 and she was around 16 or 17, or he married her since being imprisoned. Which means, yeah, she would be one of those serial killer groupies that marries a caged tiger just because they like the little thrill of danger that it gives them without ever having to truly risk their physical safety. Like a roller coaster, a relationship roller coaster. All of the adrenaline with very little of the actual threat. All I'm saying is, this line isn't Helena being a bitch. Helena is a heinous bitch, just not in this moment. But Katarina focuses in on the St. Christopher token that Helena is wearing, and her religiously-centered begging gets her an audience with Elric. I find it pretty unbelievable that this worked, but oh well. Katarina knows her mother better than I do, so if she thought that this would work, and it did, she's the authority, not me. The Katarina and Elric reunion scene is kind of touching, I've got to admit, though I think both of these characters are very crappy people. 
There's such incredible difference between this scene and Hannah's reunion with Ulrich in the previous season. Hannah was so put together and smug and vicious, and Katarina is falling apart in both appearance and mental state, but she's got this admirable determination that really points to there being actual love between her and her husband. What was between Hannah and Ulrich was nothing of the kind. Pity, then, that Katarina didn't take the other tunnel and make it back to the 50s, though I all but guarantee she wouldn't have been able to manipulate Egon like Hannah did. Elsewhere in the 80s, though, Claudia's secretary is about to have the worst day of her life. Also, the last one. Hell is empty, and all the devils are here, the man says, quoting who but William Shakespeare right before strangling a pregnant woman to death. Again, all I can think is that all of the loose ends around Claudia are being tied up, but tied up by who and why? No answers yet, though. Instead, we're on to Tronti and Yana, and after he admits that Regina is probably his daughter, Yana tells him that he has got to choose. Does he choose his family with Yana, or does he choose Claudia, and by extension, Regina, who I will remind you, he just offered to help if ever she needed it. But Tronti chooses Yana here, and of course he does. It's the same coward's move he has been pulling all his adult life. He never left Yana or his sons to be with Claudia and his daughter, never even acknowledged his daughter as his. And so why would he decide to leave his long-suffering housewife and his nearly adult son after his high-profile mistress vanished? The entire concept of leaving Yana doesn't have anything beneficial to offer him anymore. It would just mean taking on an extra burden in Regina and losing the respect of both his community and his son. This isn't Tronti making a decision. It's just Tronti acknowledging aloud the thing he is of course going to do. And speaking of Tronti being a dumbass, we find out, to my surprise, in the next scene that he survived Vinden. How? I don't know. He wasn't in the bunker. He goes to Regina's bedside and holds her hand for a moment, then vaguely assures her that killing her is the only way to save her, according to Crone Claudia, I assume. And so he suffocates his cancer-stricken secret daughter, and I am officially ready to put Tronti on my shit list forevermore. He was always a shifty asshole, but this is just fucking sick. I will just put this out there. If anyone ever tells someone that I know that the only way to save my life is to suffocate me, go right ahead and don't do that. I will take my chances with whatever you're trying to save me from. Jesus Christ. In 2053, Charlotte, whose hair is quite a bit longer now, and I like the look much better if you don't mind my saying so, she sits down with Elizabeth in some kind of a, I don't know, cave hideout for Elizabeth's group? The two women, the mutual mother-daughters and in that a trip, comfort each other, and I have to wonder where Charlotte's story actually goes from here. Does she manage to travel back in time, or is she trapped in the future for good? At Claudia's hideout, Claudia comes back to find her daughter has been killed, and I wonder if she understands that it was suffocation, not the cancer. In the caves, post-apocalypse, Noah tries to dig the tunnel back open. I can't imagine that he's going to have an incredible amount of success, but I suppose he's gotta get back to 2019 somehow, right? And back in 1888, Bartos leads Marta down into Adam's secret sanctum. Apparently, he didn't build it. In fact, he's not even the founder of Sigmundus. It would appear that Tanhaus's father created it, having been obsessed with time, or so Bartos says. The blind guy, then, is the last living member. And I guess he sees in Jonas and the others a way to bring the group back and finally take control of time. I really think that means we're doing an Adam and Eve kind of thing here, with the blind guy keeping secrets from Adam to establish and maintain a paradise of some kind, secrets that someone reveals to Eve, Crown Marta, and then she reveals to Adam. But who would that make the serpent in this equation? I have no idea. I'm also probably wrong. We will see. In any case, time-traveling Marta has at least one secret that she would like to reveal at the moment, because Jonas, as it turns out, is hiding something huge from Bartas, Magnus, and Francisca. He's told them that Adam killed Marta A, 
but he left out the fact that Adam is his own future self. Cut to Crone Marta. She's taken Jonas to some huge library and stands in front of a painting of Adam and Eve, talking about how people cannot escape their destinies. But it's the family tree on the floor beneath the painting that's the real trouble. It's the entire Nielsen line, and it is an utter clusterfuck. Honestly, it's even worse than I thought. It's kind of hard to read what relationships are supposed to be what, but fucking Bartos is on there, and connected to Agnes in some capacity. And then there's Hannah, Mads, Inez, Tronti, Francisca, Marta, Magnus, Mikkel, Katarina, Regina, Alexander, and Elizabeth. And an infinity symbol at the heart of the whole thing, which cannot possibly mean anything good. I think it also means that the only characters who aren't a part of this fucking family tree are Voller, his sister, and Clausen. So let's hear it for Voller and Benny, the real MVPs of the show. They might have died in the apocalypse, but at least they avoided all the incest. Anyway, I don't really know where we're going from here. I hardly know what to think. I don't know how religious the show is going to get. I have no idea how much it's going to wrap up versus how many threads it's going to leave dangling. I have heard that the ending of the show was divisive, but I don't have any idea why. I don't know if people were pissed about a happy ending when they wanted a sad one. I don't know if people wanted a happy one and got a sad one instead. I don't know if really important questions just never got answered, or if the ending just didn't make sense, or if it was just emotionally upsetting or unfulfilling or whatever else. I am in the dark, and I am getting increasingly anxious about how this is going to end. It's been a really fun ride, and I'm kind of desperate for reassurance that it sticks the landing too. But I guess we'll see. Before I forget, I want to say thank you to the School of Life YouTube channel for my incredibly shallow understanding of some tidbits of Schopenhauer's philosophy. So if anything that I said regarding him was woefully off the mark, take it up with them. I did my best. So, I'm going to be back next week with my coverage of episode 3 and episode 4. We are closing in on the end of this series. That's a weird place to be in. I have adored it so far. I am hoping beyond all hope that I continue to enjoy it, I continue to endure it. If this show sticks the landing, it will definitely get put down as one of the best of all time. Time travel shows are so hard to do. Time travel plotlines in general are just so difficult to do that almost no one does them well. And if, you know, if Dark manages to defy the odds and do it well, I'm just, I'm going to be overwhelmingly satisfied. It will rocket its way up into my favorites list and I'm going to be recommending it to everyone, that's for sure. But first, it will have to stick that landing. There is so much room for stumbling ahead and plenty of episodes left to start stumbling. So if you were interested in seeing my reaction videos to this show, you can get those for $5 on my Patreon. That is $5 per month. Or you can wait for them to show up on YouTube in edited form. That will happen someday in the far off and distant future. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I watch from week to week, you want to head over to the $1 Patreon tier, where you will get access to up to four polls per month determining what it is that I watch from week to week. If you are not interested in either one of those things, it would also be appreciated if you could leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, if you could talk about the show on social media, or of course, just recommend it to your friends. With all of that said, I am very much looking forward to finishing up this series and to getting into many, many more series in the future. I hope you join me. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Again, this teacher, <clears throat> did you hear what my voice just did? Holy shit. <clears throat>